and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. Sorry about not posting last week. I'm in the process of moving. It's still a couple months away, but it's been a little stressful. But in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about recent crimes. In one, we have a young girl's body pulled from a river after she's been missing for several months. Police haven't called it a murder yet, but her parents say a killer is still out there. In another case, a father and his girlfriend are on the run after his child's remains are found in the woods. In the next case, you'll hear about a new suspect in a decades-old cold case murder. And for the past two decades, investigators believe that he may be a serial killer. First, we're going to talk about Samantha Humphrey. On November 25th, 2022, the day after Thanksgiving, a 14-year-old girl headed to Riverside Park in upstate New York. Samantha Humphrey told her mother she was going to meet her ex-boyfriend. After Samantha failed to return home, her parents reported her missing. Police immediately started searching the area she was last seen and gathering information. News Channel 13 reported that Samantha and her ex had, quote, reportedly gotten into a physical altercation at the park the night she disappeared, and that was the last time she was seen alive. Surveillance footage showed Samantha near the edge of the Mohawk River inside the park shortly before midnight. There's no other evidence showing that she left the park. Three days later, a black puffy jacket Samantha was wearing in that video is recovered on the edge of the Mohawk River. Within a few days, the Schenectady County District Attorney announces that they're investigating the disappearance. On December 6th, numerous first responders gather at the park to search for Samantha by land and boat. Two days later, authorities launch drones to search by air. It's now been two weeks since she vanished. On December 20th, Samantha's mother speaks to News Channel 13 about her daughter's disappearance. Sunday is Christmas Day. That will mark exactly one month since Samantha went missing. Does the timing of the holiday season impact your emotional state? Yes, um, very much so. The holidays have always been kind of hard for me anyway, um, just because of past family stuff. And Samantha was supposed to be taking a vacation to Puerto Rico for Christmas this year in particular. So just the idea of her missing out on that has been very emotional and also a little frightening because it was something that she was looking forward to doing. Jacqueline, what is it that gives you comfort or gives you hope at this point? Or is that a difficult commodity to find? Um, I am finding it harder and harder every day to have any hope about the situation that my daughter is okay because I feel like she's not. Um, so I just hope that if she's not, she's in a better place wherever she is. Of course, I still hope she comes home, but um, it just is the longer that this goes on, the more that I fear something very bad has happened to her. By Christmas time, investigators have scaled back their search and only one volunteer remained on the river. A month passes. And on February 2nd of this year, there's a report of a possible body that comes in. However, nothing was found. It was a false alarm. Weeks later, on the 22nd, a fisherman finds a body in the Mohawk River near the location Samantha was last seen. An autopsy confirmed the body belonged to Samantha Humphrey. Sources close to News 13 reported that the conditions in which she was found were incredibly suspicious. 
Her body was in a shopping cart under an old railroad bridge at the stockade. Again, police have yet to say that this is a murder, and they're awaiting more details from the autopsy. Samantha's mother, Jacqueline, released a statement after the announcement, quote, I am obviously devastated. No amount of time could prepare for this day. Coping with the events of today is very difficult. Samantha's father, Jeff, added, quote, We mourn the loss of our murdered daughter, Samantha. Her murderers remain at large and remain a danger to the children of Schenectady. We look forward to their swift and permanent prosecution. We have complete faith in the Schenectady Police Department and District Attorney's Office to complete this task, end quote. An unidentified family member of Samantha told News 13, quote, Obviously, she didn't tie herself up in a shopping cart and sink herself. It is almost certainly a homicide. So, according to this family member, Samantha was tied up inside of this shopping cart. Samantha Humphrey's obituary in part reads, On November 25, 2022, Samantha Valentine Humphrey, 14, lost a short but ferocious battle with evil itself and passed into infinity. Sammy, who was born in Materi, Louisiana, is survived by a multitude of loving and devastated family and friends who will remember her with joy and pain until they follow. She is also survived by her adored cats, Zoe and Bruno, loving and loyal mutts, blessedly unable to understand their loss of a best friend. Samantha was and is a light in the dark with talents, loves, and dreams. Rest in power, Sam. Our love for you is far, far beyond measure. End quote. Not only have police not openly called this case a murder as of the time of this recording, that means they, of course, haven't talked about any suspects. There has been online rumors swirling around about who those suspects are, but I'm not going to report on that because it's not confirmed by police. So that's all we know about this case as of the time of this recording, and now I'm going to move on to a national manhunt for two individuals. Also, this case isn't actually super recent, but it was recommended by a listener and I thought it was important to talk about. In Pasco, Washington, Mariah Quintero asked for a welfare check on her eight-year-old son, Edgar Cassian, and her two girls in June of 2021. The last time she'd seen her son was before February of 2020, well over a year ago. Edgar was supposed to be with his biological father and his girlfriend, but when police went to their home, they learned that Edgar wasn't there and hadn't been credibly accounted for since September of 2020. Soon after that, his nine- and three-year-old sisters would turn up wandering the streets in Tijuana, Mexico, under, quote, alarmingly dangerous conditions. Mariah told NBC News, quote, I want my babies back. I would do anything for my kids. I would do anything to find my baby, please. They need to tell me where he is. Please, I'm begging them to please tell me what they did with my boy, end quote. Pasco police said Edgar's parents or step-parents should know where he is, but both claim that they don't. So I guess at that time, they couldn't determine who was telling the truth and who was lying. Edgar is described as a Hispanic boy with black hair and brown eyes, about four feet tall, weighing 60 pounds. On May 17th, the police department issued a missing child report for him. Weeks later, they also issued an arrest warrant for Edgar's father and stepmother, 32-year-old Edgar Salvador Cassian Garcia and 36-year-old Araceli Medina Tapia. They were seeking to arrest the couple and charge them with assault of a child in the first degree in relation to Edgar's siblings' conditions in Mexico. They also named them as a suspect in Edgar's disappearance. And because of their ties to Mexico, Pasco detectives were working with the FBI and U.S. Marshals to track them down. 
Fast forward eight months, and on February 5th of 2022, hikers are walking in the area of State Route 397 and South Finley Road when they find human bones. The area was then excavated and more human remains were discovered. A lieutenant said the body had been there for some time, and it appeared to be a younger individual. On April 13th, a forensic anthropologist identified the body as eight-year-old Edgar Cassian through the use of his dental records. The area his body was found is just seven miles from the town of Pasco, across the Columbia River. That same day, a nationwide arrest warrant was issued for Edgar's father and stepmother. Their current whereabouts are unknown, but as of February 2022, it was believed that they were in Mexico. Investigators said that they were hoping to arrest the couple before it was revealed that Edgar's body was found, but word traveled too fast, and the suspects found out too quickly and got away. When this arrest warrant was announced, more information about the events leading up to Edgar's disappearance were also revealed. Apparently, his mother Mariah said that she had called police and Washington State Child Protective Services several times after her ex-boyfriend, Edgar's biological father, took custody of their son and two daughters. She was trying to get them back. Within months of those calls, Edgar's siblings, a nine- and three-year-old girl, fled a hotel room in Mexico, apparently to escape Araceli, and were found wandering the streets, looking very beat up. They told authorities that they had been abused. The older girl was not able to eat, walk, or use the restroom by herself. This horrifying discovery led police to become very concerned about the whereabouts of eight-year-old Edgar. Before his remains were found, a detective spoke to an individual who'd spoken to the couple in February of 2022. This individual was told that the couple was in Mexico, and they were asked to transfer money to a Walmart in Mexico. The money was apparently transferred, but the suspects didn't pick it up, presumably because relatives or friends tipped them off that Edgar's body had been found and police were on to them. On the U.S. Marshals website, the couple is listed on the top 15 most wanted fugitives. 34-year-old Edgar Cassian is described as a Hispanic or Latino male with brown eyes and brown hair. He stands six feet tall and weighs 220 pounds. He's considered dangerous. He's wanted by the Franklin County Sheriff's Office in Washington in reference to aggravated murder, four counts of rape of a child, and three counts of assault. He may be traveling with his girlfriend, Araceli Medina, also a fugitive, and or children, ages 10, 12, and 14, who have been reported missing slash endangered by law enforcement. These children apparently belong to Araceli. 38-year-old Araceli is described as a Hispanic or Latino female with black hair and brown eyes. She's 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighs 125 pounds. She's wanted on the same charges as Edgar. Fox 25 reported about court documents in relation to the interview of Edgar's siblings after they were found in Mexico. In June of 2021, the nine-year-old girl stated that the couple had tied her up in the bathroom on multiple occasions when she lived with them. They poured boiling water on her, causing severe burns to her hands and legs. She said they would drown her in the bathroom by grabbing the back of her head and shoving her face in water. She said she couldn't breathe for long periods of time. As of now, there is a combined $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of Edgar Garcia and his girlfriend, Araceli. According to the Missing Persons Center, the couple was last seen traveling in a black Dodge Durango bearing Washington license plates BTJ-2222. Now on to the next case. 
In June of 1980, 21-year-old Holly Ann Campiglia was reported missing from Cherry Hill in New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. Holly was a frequent runaway, and a month after she left, her parents received a letter indicating that she was safe in Sacramento, California. So, they apparently withdrew her missing persons report. Two weeks later, the body of a woman was found in a cornfield in Dixon, 20 miles east of Sacramento. She'd been shot six times in the head. That body went unidentified for 12 years. On May 12, 1992, Holly's parents made a new missing persons report. And by late June, the National Crime Information Center's missing person system found Holly's description similar to that of the unidentified murder victim in California. Local police sent photographs of the victim to Cherry Hill Police. Holly's parents identified their daughter through these photos. They also gave police the names of two men mentioned in Holly's letter from over a decade ago. Authorities said they were trying to find them. On July 6th, Holly's parents spoke to the Courier Post in New Jersey. Her mother stated, quote, I just kept hoping she would show up one day with grandchildren, but with each year, I'd lose a little hope. According to them, Holly's name was accidentally dropped from the computer list of missing persons just before her body was found, and that this wasn't intentional. They learned about this mistake 12 years later, which caused them to relist their daughter as missing in May. Sally stated, quote, We just thought she was on the computer. We didn't ever think she was off of it. Holly Ann Campiglia was one of five daughters and described as a grade A student. Her mother said she was close to her sisters and always made their dresses and did their hair. But during her senior year of high school, Holly changed. Sally stated, quote, That's when she began taking drugs and having emotional problems. We don't know if one triggered the other. The last time we heard from her was a letter she wrote saying she wanted to get on with her life. She could never wait for a plane. She either hitchhiked or took a bus. When they send her body home, it will be the first time she was ever on a plane. And her last. End quote. Holly started running away from home in her freshman year at Glasboro State College in 1977. There, she was studying fine arts, and her father recalled that she was a talented young artist. In pencil sketches of her hands and feet, one hand is shaped like a gun, with the word bang written nearby. Her father, Augustine, stated, quote, Talk about your ironies. After the first time Holly ran away from home, she was found a month later, walking along the road, about a mile from her house. She would run away four more times, before leaving the fifth time for good in the summer of 1980. Sally stated, Each time she was back, she was less responsive to the medical treatment she took for emotional problems. We had to watch her all the time. If we turned our back, she would try to run away. The last time Sally saw her daughter was on June 10, 1980. They were on their way to one of her counseling sessions when Holly jumped out of the car. She told her mother, quote, I want to see the world and do things my way. Sally tried to pull her back in, but Holly got away. And by that point, she was an adult. She didn't have to do what her parents told her. Sally stated, I called the Cherry police right away. They were very helpful and stopped several girls who looked like her, but she had already hitchhiked out of the area. We didn't hear from her for a month until we got the letter. It said she was living with two guys and we should try not to think of her anymore. We tried to trace the letter, but the return address wasn't a real street. That letter was sent in July of 1980, weeks before her body was found on August 3rd. The Campigula family did everything in their power to search for their daughter. They contacted Social Security to see if she had a job, Salvation Army Centers, Motor Vehicle Divisions, State Health Departments for death certificates, missing person organizations, and they even contacted several cults. Sally said, Every time I saw a girl hitchhiking, I'd swing around to see if it was her. 
This has been heart-rendering. We've been searching for Holly for 12 years. I have filing cabinets filed with letters I sent out. Each of my secretaries who helped me has been very concerned. I was always sending letters to different people. It was never-ending. I always suspected the worst. How could someone be so inconspicuous? Unless they were dead. It's just been a nightmare. My daughter said to me, Mom, Holly gave us 12 years to get used to this. With each year, we lost a little hope. In a way, knowing what happened to her is some kind of relief. Sally knew that her daughter was murdered, but she never learned who her killer or killers were. In July of 2016, Sally passed away at the age of 83. Holly's father, Augustine, might still be alive today, though. And if he is, then he knows about the recent breakthrough in Holly's case. Back in late 2021, Holly's family requested that her case be reopened and evidence be re-examined. A lab technician resubmitted items for additional DNA analysis. Months later, it was reported that male DNA was discovered. This DNA was submitted to another database, and it came back with a match. A man serving life for the murder of a girl in 1975. A murder he wasn't convicted for until 2005. His name is Herman Lee Hobbs, and today he's 76 years old. In February of this year, an arrest warrant was issued, as well as a request to move him to jail so he could face charges. He's currently being held on suspicion of murder, but as of March 1st, he hasn't been officially charged yet. I looked up Herman in the newspaper archives because none of the articles online talk about his prior murder charges. And, oh my god, this man is most definitely a serial killer. In late May of 2004, the Sacramento Bee reported about Herman's murder conviction, and at that time, he was already in prison for rape. That year, he was charged and convicted with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of 13-year-old Terry Marie Pata. On January 21st, 1975, Terry left Rio Linda Jr. High early after complaining of a headache. She never got home. Nine days later, her legs were spotted sticking out of a drainage pipe in a field six miles from home. She'd been raped and fatally stabbed 27 times. So that murder happened in 1975, and Holly Ann Campicula was murdered five years later in 1980. Twenty whole years go by, and Herman Hobbs is convicted for raping a 15-year-old girl in 2000. There's no way in hell that Herman decided to kill a 13-year-old girl and a 21-year-old woman, then stop completely for two decades, only to then pick it back up again 20 years later. And in 2004, the Sacramento Bee reported that police were looking at him in relation to the murders of four other young girls. One of those cases is the murder of 11-year-old Stephine Black. On October 24, 1974, Stephine walked down the hill from her grandparents' home and waited for the bus at 7.45 a.m. At 7.55 a.m., the bus arrived, but Stephine wasn't there. In a matter of minutes, she'd been taken. Her backpack was found nearby. Eighteen days later, her body was found in a rice field, heavily decomposed. Because of that, there was little to no evidence, and police couldn't determine how she died or whether or not she'd been raped. But police still believed that her murder and the murder of Terry earlier that year were somehow connected. In the 2000s rape case, Hobbs got 25 years to life because he'd also been convicted in three robberies in 1969. After he was finally put behind bars, hopefully for good, people started coming forward with information about him. That year, an officer stated, quote, That information led to our belief that Herman Hobbs was probably responsible for several homicides. And get this, in 2001, before Herman was arrested for the rape, he was charged with the murder of a 29-year-old mother of three, Brenda Ann Tucker. She disappeared from her home in May of 1994. Seven years later, her skull was found in Yuba County. She'd been shot in the head. 
Investigators believed Herman, who was living there at the time, was the murderer, but a judge dismissed the case because there was insufficient evidence. I read an article about the evidence that they presented, and to me at least, it seemed like there was a lot connecting him to the murder. And if you're wondering how Herman was linked to any case in the first place, how police knew to collect his DNA, well, in December of 2000, his own daughter and niece, who were in their 30s, came forward to police. They told them that Herman was responsible for the murder of numerous children, including 13-year-old Terry Pata. Because of all that information, it is highly likely that Herman is in fact a serial killer. Herman Lee Hobbs also just sounds like a serial killer name, in my opinion. But as of now, that is all the information we have, and that is the end of this week's episode. If you like this episode and you want to support the show, you can leave a rating on Spotify or iTunes, or you can become a Patreon member and get access to bonus content every month. I want to give a special shout out to the new Patreon members this week. Thank you to Riley B, Francisca V, Michelle M, and Danielle. I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.